you would please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, we are going to do what I had said we were going to do, which is, uh, today we're going to focus on how the book of Hebrews uses the Old Testament in chapter 1. We are going to do this as discussion groups, and so you do need to be um, able to move yourself to get into a group. These groups do not have to be large, but they should be more than two people, right? If you want to go ahead and move now, go ahead. That now is fine, since uh, some of our young men are doing that. Well, how about how about one of you go with the back table? Oh, okay, never mind. They're, they're big, big enough group. All right, Hebrews chapter 1. chapter 1, the first few verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And uh, son being a very important keyword in this chapter. Right? You will see it all over the place. Whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right, so here are our first two Old Testament quotations. That first one there, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Where is that from? Use the resources you have at hand. Psalms 2-7. Okay. Psalm 2-7. What I want you to do in your groups is I want you to go read... All right, so make a few join a group. Um, I, I want you to go back and read Psalm 2 7. Think about that verse in its context in Psalm 2 7, and tell me if any particular thoughts strike you in how the author of Hebrews is using this. I want you to just describe what is he doing. All right, so I'll give you, uh, I'll actually give you four minutes as a group, starting now. All right. Psalm 2 7. Um, 
Hello. Good morning. Ready a few few more seconds. describe what what do they see assuming he's not talking to a human here, right? That's right. All right. What are, any other thoughts? Right. Any other thoughts? In Psalm, isn't he talking to David? But he mm-hmm. also, it can be used as a reference to Jesus, because in Hebrews, it's talking to Jesus. What mm-hmm. about Jesus? Who, um, do we know who wrote this psalm? The psalmist wrote this psalm, right? Uh, c- correct, is, that is the answer. It, this one does not have a uh, superscription that says who wrote it. Um, 
Could totally be David. Could be another psalmist, right? Um, what were you going to say? We're more or less the same thing. That it, I mean, by looking at it, I'm sure in the original context, it's, it, there's probably like a Davidic theme here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we know, I mean, David is a type of Christ. Yes. In the book of Hebrews, clearly the audience are Hebrew Christians. We know this is before the New Testament, so you know the practice of Paul when he would go into a new city would be to go to the synagogues and try to use the Old Testament scriptures to try to make his case for yeah. Christ. And clearly, I mean, I think that's what's going on here, and they're using the Psalms to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've got a good grasp on this one, right? It was written by a psalmist. The psalmist, in his brain, my assumption would be, is thinking about the Davidic king. Maybe it's David himself making a song about himself. But, certainly, all right, there is, based on the Hebrews usage, clearly, early proto-Trinitarian theology going on here. All right, and what, what, if you were to say, we know what we mean by Trinitarian theology. It's theology about the Trinity. What would proto Trinitarian theology being when somebody says proto. No. What's that? Be like pre 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 Nicaea before you had everything kind of hammered out and spelled out theologically. It's already being implied all over the place. Yeah. When somebody says proto, they're meaning early, beginning stages. All right. And so you've got. uh, Do we have the author of Hebrews here? You know, is he writing the Nicene Creed or words just like the Nicene Creed? No. However, this a great way to describe this is proto-Trinitarian theology. It's, it's early Trinitarian theology. He is clearly saying the actual recipient of this is Jesus, the Son. That's truly the full, the full meaning of this text. All right? He's like, see, it's in the Bible. Yeah. Totally. It's in your Bible. Mm -hmm. And he's clearly, that's the way he argues throughout so much of this book, right? So this is, that is a very important element. All right, the next quote, which is uh, in the same verse, where is that one from? Anybody? 2 Samuel 7.14. All right? Why don't you all go to that, look at it. All right? I'm going to give you a few minutes. Discuss it. 2 Samuel 7.14.
probably in David's. Somebody different. What's the what is going on in Second Samuel? Right there. What's somebody just describe what's what's happening? Uh, Proto Trinity. Okay. What what is going on in Second Samuel? What's that? Okay, so the Lord is talking to David. Here, quite clearly, the Lord is talking to David. Um, who is doing the talking here? What's the prophet? Nathan. Nathan the prophet. Who anointed David? Samuel. Samuel. Prophet Samuel anointed David, right? Okay, so he's talking. What, what would we call, there's a, a name we give this event. And this particular uh, speech to David. What do we call this? What? 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 
Yes, this is the Davidic covenant. All right. When, when David was anointed, right, he was anointed and made king. But at this point, all right, you get um, some very important promises. Like, for example, all right, um, your, your, your kingdom will last forever. Right? I mean, that comes from here. Okay? And that is a very important point of um, proto-Trinitarian theology. All right. Um, now, with that in mind, why is the author of Hebrews using this verse? He's trying to link Jesus very, very closely to David. Clearly so. Now here's another question. What relates the Psalm passage to this one? What language, specifically, what word links? Son. All right? Son is what links these. It's it's son language. All right? Just like he said, yes, he spoke to us before in the prophets, but now he spoke to us in a son. All right, it's sun language that's that's linking these two while they belong together. All right, uh, next one. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, "Let all God's angels worship him." Where does that come from? All right. Does nobody's Bibles mention another verse? Okay. Psalm 97.7 is listed. Uh, you will sometimes see just Deuteronomy. You will sometimes see both of them listed. I want you to discuss, and uh, I'm make sure you look at multiple translations on this one, and I'm giving you a translation to include in your discussion. Okay? Let's see. I'll give you all two... And y'all can have two since you're dispersed. What? I will tell you what translation it is in a minute. Don't worry, it's not heretical. (laughs) So, and since some of them might not have it, I will write it down up here. So actually, it's thirty-two forty-three. Leverage your various translations, please. What works do y'all have? 
Compare it to Hebrews, yeah, and Deuteronomy 32.43 as well. Wait, is it 32 or 42? It is Deuteronomy 32.43. It's right here. <laughs> All right, 30 more seconds. Let's begin discussion. All right. Depending on what translations you are using, this is either relatively straightforward or confusing. Let's go with confusing first. What is unusual in this particular case? Right. In KJV, all right, welcome. Hey, uh, we're in groups, so why don't you uh, sit with them right there? So, yeah, in the KJV, all right, um, these words are missing. Okay? What other translations that you have are missing these words? Anybody? Holman? Holman, okay, so the Holman Christian Standard Bible, all right, missing. ESV is missing it. Is yours missing it? ESV has it. Uh, okay. My well, my my ESV has it. Both of our ESVs are missing it. Interesting. 
Well, modern translations do go through revisions, and so, and sometimes they don't necessarily tell you all the changes. Actually, they would be documented, but they don't highlight them, all right? So some versions of the ESV, apparently, are missing it. What, what habit some ESV do? What else? Okay, Septuagint. Now, what is the Septuagint again? Right. So, the Greek translation of the Old Testament made by uh, made by ancient Jews. All right. We'll lay it out on a timeline here in just a second. Um, so, this is particularly the one that we're going to discuss, um, where we will, as I said earlier, we're going to see how the sausage is made in terms of textual criticism and interpretation, at least in. Why are some? Why do some translations not have these words, and why would some have these words? All right. Um, but before we do that, anybody know? Well, tell me about Psalm ninety-seven. All right, because we were talking about Deuteronomy thirty-two. Why? Why would? Is this a reasonable option? Psalm ninety-seven. Yeah. In both mighty capitals, ESVs, the final section of verse seven says, "Worship him, all you gods." Gods is lowercase, which could be angels. Okay. And the people could have viewed the angels as gods. Okay. So All right. Know. Okay. Any other thoughts? Okay. All right. So this is, I'm going to essentially lay the evidence out, all right, and why it works this way. And uh, you'll see. Um, This is one of those things that unless we find some new manuscripts, we will probably never know for sure on this one. It's terribly unfortunate. All right. So if we think back to the original version of Deuteronomy, do we have the original manuscript of Deuteronomy? We do not have that. All right. It's it's unfortunate. If we did, then this, the text critical question wouldn't be a question. We'd go Deuteronomy. We have it. All right. right. Now, if we go all the way over here, and this is going to be a timeline, by the way, and so this would be like uh, 1400 B.C., all right? Which is not when Psalms would be written, but would be potentially, arguably, the date for Deuteronomy. And uh, here we have 2022. All right. Us now. The KJV. In terms of its um, manuscripts, about what about what year was KJV written in? Okay, so we're we're I don't know we're here. All right, for the KJV. Okay, somebody mentioned it over here. What what manuscripts was the KJ, the KJV built on for the Old Testament? For the Old Testament. For the Old Testament. No, they did not use the Latin Vulgate. They use what is called the Masoretic text, which would probably be around. Actually, KJV would probably be closer here. We're talking about very, very long time periods here. Um, and generally, you'll see it MT, but that just means Masoretic, all right? Text. All right, the Masoretes were Jews, Jewish scholars, scribes, and um, this would be about like 700 to 1,000, all right? Um, they made copies of the Old Testament, right? Because they were Jews. This is what they would do as scribes. That's certainly what you would do. And it's these set of texts 
you know, 7 to uh, you know, 1000 AD, in this particular case, that the KJV's primary Old Testament is based off of. Right? And the decision to use the Masoretic text as the base, as opposed to the Vulgate, was a Protestant thing to do. All right? That came out of the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church, uh, much more recently, changed to do that. They've also done it, but it was last century. So out of the Reformation comes Protestantism. Protestantism says, we're going to base our Bibles on the Masoretic text. Documents, all right, copies of the Old Testament, all right, that are roughly 2,000 years old, away from the original. All right? In the Masoretic text, these words that we read in Hebrews are not there. That is why when you read King James Bible, or probably the NKJV, because they use the same manuscripts as the KJV, and some modern translations, you will not find those words, because they are truly not here. Okay? Questions about that, specifically? So there's a direct line here, between these two. Okay. Is this one of those things just attributed, or do they not know what to attribute it to, or to, you know, scribes mess up, they accidentally jump a line, and mm. it's never there anymore? That's a good question. We'll get there. So where do these words come from? All right. Well, uh, what translation did I give you? Anybody? There's not a name on it. Uh, Septuagint. Okay. It is. This is. Uh, it is the Septuagint. All right. Uh, and it is called. This translation is called the Nets. All right. Not to be confused with the Net Bible. Completely different. New English translation, which is true, which is the same for both of them. The Nets is of the Septuagint. Okay. Uh, Septuagint was done, created about when-ish? B.C. Second or third century B.C. So if we go, uh, if we say here is, here is one, all right? So we're going to have our, our Septuagint, okay? And the abbreviation for Septuagint is that because Septuagint means 70. So the Septuagint is an ancient Greek translation, which means if you see a Septuagint saying something different than what you have in your Hebrew Bible, it very well could be better. All right? Just because it's in the Masoretic text doesn't mean it's right. All right? Doesn't mean it's the proper reading. All right? Um, the Septuagint will sometimes have things that are wrong in it. Sometimes it will have things that are correct. And so... The book of Hebrews, all right, whoever the author was here, he used the Septuagint as his Bible. All right? That's what he used. Uh, you can compare the two and go, yep, that's what he used. That's very common. Very, very common. So, Septuagint. Now, what he's got here, all right, what he's got here, isn't exactly what's in Deuteronomy 32 for the Septuagint, but it's very close. So people say, yes, he's using the Septuagint version. Okay? So, that's part of the story. Now, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Scrolls found in a series of caves. So it wasn't just one, it was a series of caves. In what country? Modern Israel. Modern Israel. Alright, they were right close to the Dead Sea. Alright, that's why they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right. 
these Dead Sea Scrolls, boom, um, were written, all right, second, first, second, third century BC. So they are roughly the same age as the Septuagint. All right. What language was the Dead Sea Scrolls written in? Latin. Hmm? Latin. Not Latin. Hebrew primarily, and Aram- Hebrew and Aramaic. There's a lots of both of those, and I believe there are a few Greek things, but it was a Hebrew-Aramaic worshiping-speaking community. And so if you find Dead Sea Scrolls, it's generally speaking, it's Aramaic or Hebrew. So when, here's, here's essentially the story. When the KJV, all right, did their work, which they were building off of Wycliffe and others, right? But when essentially when the post-reformed tradition, it's like we're going to uh, translate our Old Testament, they, diso- they chose to base it off of the Masoretic text. There was no Hebrew manuscript at that time that had those words that the author of Hebrews uses. Zero. Zero knowledge of it. Naturally, they're like, we're not going to put it in, right? And so they didn't. Uh, but they knew, they would have certainly known, that the Septuagint would have had this, all right? And... I didn't check the Vulgate. Vulgate probably does too. But maybe not. Then, last century, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And lo and behold, we have our first Hebrew manuscript with these words on it. Almost. All right? One word difference. The exact thing it says, all right, is it says to him, bow down to him, all right. Oh, excuse me. Prostrate yourselves, bow down to him before him, all gods. Doesn't say angels. It says gods. So that at least that line was certainly here at this point. All right. And so this is why ultimately we will, unless we find new manuscripts, we will never know for sure, for sure, if this came and was in the original manuscripts for Deuteronomy. All right? Because this is not an exact match. Angels versus gods. Like Jonathan said, similar in ideas. All right? As we talked about before, the word for gods in the Old Testament just means essentially spiritual beings. All right? So in that sense, angels were little g-gods. Okay? So there's semantic overlap. They mean... Close enough where that can totally work, all right? And so what modern scholars do, and this is why you see differences in the modern translations, is, of course, the ESV, all right, and apparently they changed their mind on this, which is okay to do. They're here, and they're like, well, we have our textual tradition that, I mean, everybody's, everybody's cheating on everybody else's homework, all right? And they should, New, new translators should look at old translator stuff. All right, they're cheating off the KJV and various others. But at some point, apparently, they decided that this tradition was strong enough to go... Those words were probably there. And they're going to ask the questions that Catherine asked, which is, how do you explain the words? All right, is it more likely that these words fell out along the way because of scribal error? Or is it more likely that somebody added them later? All right? Because when you're copying manuscripts, all right, if you do it all day long, it's really easy to make mistakes. You're copying, you skip a line, and it's just gone. All right? And so somebody was copying a manuscript, and that's what happened, and that's what the Masoretic text had in it. 
That is one reasonable explanation. Another reasonable explanation was they decided to, for liturgical reasons maybe, conflate a very similar, a text very similar to what we have in Hebrews, which is the Psalm 1, and kind of combined them, and that made it into a manuscript. And so you've got two different manuscript traditions. Both are possible, and that's what modern textual critics do, is they look at essentially incomplete evidence, all right, and try to make decisions. Often these decisions are very easy. All right, for the New Testament, we have excellent manuscripts, excellent manuscripts for those. For the Old Testament, not as good, all right? Uh, because our Old Testament, our, you know, the, the, the Hebrew Old Testament that is the primary basis for our right, translations before 1950, all right, was based on manuscripts from a very long distance from when they were read. You can go back in time by looking at this. Okay? Now, what about the Psalm passage? Why can't Psalm 97.7 be the right one? It can, actually. Um, Psalm 97.7 says, for example, uh, Worship him, all you gods. All right? Not angels. Worship him, all you gods. Okay? Uh, so, potentially, the Septuagint at some point actually had angels. And so what you've got, essentially, is the author of Hebrews, who was writing here. Okay? We've got the author of Hebrews, who was writing here, who was using a manuscript of the Septuagint that we no longer have. And therefore, he was actually quoting from Psalm 97. It's plausible. That's not where most people go. Most people say it's Deuteronomy. But that's possible, all right? So the probable thing is, probable, though not sure, Deuteronomy was written in what language? Hebrew, Hebrew all right? The Septuagint translators translated it, all right? And there were multiple Greek translations, of the Old Testament. So it's not like this is truly a unified thing, but anyway. So they translated it, all right? They translated it from a Hebrew manuscript. This is essentially, if you're the new ESV that has this line, this is your argument. The author of Hebrews was using a manuscript of the Septuagint, which had this line from the original Hebrew. And somewhere along the way, that got dropped out and never made it into the Masoretic text, so therefore it was never in the King James. And apparently it wasn't even in the first edition of the ESV. But they were eventually convinced by the evidence that that is the case. Okay? So that is what, just in case you were wondering, because I know you were, that's what text critics do all day long, is they um, look at manuscripts, right? And they work on these arguments. One thing that's I thought was super fascinating, but you might be bored by. Very short. Uh, when the New Testament was being copied, right, early on, uh, there were no... New, nobody was handed a Bible in the first century. Here's the Bible. Okay? That's not how it worked. Books, all right, they were writing on, you know, skins of animals, all right? They're writing on skins of animals. And a book for this would be, like, really huge. All right, they don't have this paper thin 
stuff like we have, all right? Potentially really thick books. That's not how they distributed Bibles at the time, all right? They would distribute individual works. Here's the Gospel of Matthew, all right? Here's a collection of Paul's letters, all right? Here's, all right, here's his book of Revelation, all right? Here's Genesis, or maybe the Pentateuch. But generally speaking, they didn't make a whole lot of single books. That's changed in um, the third, well, in the fourth century A.D., you actually do have manuscripts that were full Bibles in Greek, which would be the New Testament in Greek and the Old Testament Greek, the Septuagint. There is a codex from, a codex is a, uh, our form of book with a spine that you turn pages, not a scroll in other words, from the uh, 400s. All right? It is called the Codex A, or called Codex Alexandrinus. Okay, it's a new. It's it is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And funny enough, the Psalm ninety-seven has the exact same words as the author of Hebrews has. There, pretty much. Why? Maybe because he read the author of Hebrews and said, "You know what? This is probably what he's quoting from. I'm just going to." Make a little change there exactly right. Could be that. So anyway, that is another piece to throw into it. So this is what text critics do, and this is why Bible translations will sometimes um, have things in them that are not in other Bible translations. The basic facts are this is how it works out. We have Hebrew manuscripts that are not so old and some that are. A lot of the Old Testament is covered by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not the whole thing, but a lot of it is. All right? And you can leverage other things like the Septuagint. All right? The good news is, all right, nothing about Christian doctrine, all right, or even, even Old Testament doctrine is significantly affected by any of this. Okay? I mean, there's debatable stuff, but... The theology that's built on our New Testament and Old Testament, there's, there's, you can't go, well, because of textual criticism, I'm not sure if any of this is right. No, actually. Uh, we actually have a lot of manuscripts. There are a few places, though, that are difficult to know about. All right? And this is one of those. All right? Did the original copy have, ex- have these words? I think so. A lot of people think so. But we can't be 100% sure. And won't until we find some, I don't know, 700-year-old Hebrew manuscripts that have those words. Then we'll go, okay, yeah. It had those words for sure. Yeah. I, I think this is the case, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that in the New Testament, whenever Jesus quotes the Old Testament, 100% of the time he quotes the Septuagint. I don't know. I can neither confirm nor deny that. But the Septuagint is used very widely in the New Testament. Yeah. And if Jesus was, if depending on what language he was speaking, if Jesus was speaking in Aramaic to his fellow Jews, he would not be quoting from the Septuagint. He would certainly be quoting from either the Hebrew Bible or an Aramaic translation. Um, if he was speaking in Greek, which a lot of people think he was, then there'd be a really good chance he'd be quoting from the Septuagint. So that's another one of those debated topics. So in terms of textual criticism, I find all of this very fascinating, but also not what I don't want my job to be this. I'm not quite that fascinated by it. 
Um, though it might be better than programming, I don't know. Programming's fun. Um, but just in terms of, all right, just in terms of our Bibles, the text we have, all right, this kind of situation where we're like, eh, we're not sure, is actually ex- extremely rare for the New Testament, all right? It's extremely rare, and nothing that affects Orthodox doctrine, all right? There's no such thing as what the Da Vinci Code said. Oh, yeah, they just added lots of Constantine, added lots of stuff and changed the Bible. Nonsense. Um, it's impossible. You, you can't make that argument with a straight face if you know what you're doing. Um, it's just the data is there, and the data is really clear, all right? especially on the New Testament. On the Old Testament, there are certain things that are fuzzier because our manuscripts are not as good, and we don't have as many manuscripts. There are thousands of New Testament manuscripts in Greek. Thousands. It's quite, quite good evidence. No, back to here, yeah. So the basic, uh, the state of things are as you would expect. All right. If we talk about New Testament manuscripts, and so we're talking from, um, don't laugh at me. We're talking from essentially here to roughly the printing of the creation of the printing press. All right. The manuscript count goes something like this. All right. A little bit, a little bit, and then a lot. Okay. And so our older, we have, a, we have a few, several really old manuscripts of the New Testament, all right? Which is why we can be confident, yes, we actually do have the New Testament text, all right? We know what was in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know what was in Paul's letters, all right? There's enough old manuscripts that we're like, yes, we have, we have their words. And as a matter of fact, uh, what, the way Dan Wallace who's, some of you know, a textual critic from Dallas Seminary, what he would essentially say uh, is, we know we have their words. We just have their words plus a few more. And we just got to figure out those plus a few more so we can get rid of those. Essentially, that's the way he looks at it. All right? We've got their words. Because we, we have a lot of old manuscripts. However, because of time and because of number of Christians, all right, the manuscripts start ballooning. A right? ton of manuscripts. All the old New Testament manuscripts have been very thoroughly studied, all right? Uh, fully cataloged, f- very thoroughly studied. And that's what our modern Greek New Testaments are primarily based off of, all right? Uh, this very large number of manuscripts, all right, have not been thoroughly studied, all right? Mostly because they don't, they don't think they're as, as important, I mean, generally speaking, what's more important? A manuscript written 200 years after the book was written or something written 1,000 years after the book was written? You're going to tend to put more emphasis on the early manuscripts. And so that's why all of these are very thoroughly studied. And there's some stuff here that has not been thoroughly studied yet, frankly. Um, and so what modern textual critics do today and other organizations like uh, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, CSNTM, which, which Bill mentioned, is they are photographing, making sure we have high-resolution digital photographs of as much of this as possible. 
right? Because, as we know, wars happen. And we've lost New Testament manuscripts because buildings got bombed. Right? It happens. And so they're like, let's make digital photographs. Because then you can copy them and put them everywhere. And we can't lose them. Totally makes sense to do. So there's that aspect of it. And there is actually a lot of text-critical work to be done in this area of manuscript work. So we actually do need, even though I don't think I want to be a full-time textual critic, um, we do need more of those in the world. Because that's a whole lot of stuff to go through. And there's not all that many textual critics for New Testament or really any ancient book. Yeah. For those photocopies of the text, do they put them in the original language and then put like a translated language beside them? No, they're just they're just making high resolution digital photographs of them and storing them or putting them online. Yeah. So like ones in Greek would be high resolution photocopies of ones in Greek and yeah. you read them either. Okay. You'd have to know Greek to read them. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you hear. It'd be Greek to you. As they would say. I wanted to make the joke before someone else did. World's worst joke, but I wanted to make it first. All right. uh, so yeah. And so people are still doing work on this. It's important work. All right. Very important work. But there is still work to be done. All right. Real quick, because it is time to be done. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up with this next time. All right, but if you look at what's going on here, what's the basic contrast between verse 6 and verse 5? What does 6 do to the conversation in Hebrews? Brings in worship. Who? Who's doing the worshiping? Angels. Right. He begins a contrast with the Son. All right? Who's the Son? He's the one who is begotten by God. He is the one who has God as a father. Who's the angels? The angels worship that guy. All right? The angels worship Jesus. And so he's trying to make a distinction. Who's better? Angels or Jesus? Jesus is better. Jesus is more important. Why? Angels worship him. Therefore, he's more important. Okay? We'll pick up on that next time, and we'll continue on. And uh, we'll, we'll dig more into, think a little bit more about that verse, uh, and then we'll move on through the rest of chapter 1.